Well, good morning, church. Thanks for braving the cold and joining us here. These Arctic chills, man. But the coffee is warm, the fireplace is warm, and the coffee corner. So I hope you got to enjoy that this morning. Those of you joining us online, uh, you may have made the wise decision. But we're glad to have you with us. No matter if you're in person, online, great to be with you today. Hey, church, how do you know when you're blessed? What does that mean? What does it look like? What is it to be blessed? I mean, we hear that word blessing a lot in our culture. Something goes good, like, oh, I'm blessed. Oh, that's such a blessing. Somebody sneezes and we say, that's right, God bless you. Unless you're a Seinfeld fan, then maybe there's a different phrase for that. But, you know, what does it mean to be blessed? If we were to scroll through the social media and we were to see all the uh, all the posts on social media, we'd probably see on on uh, Instagram and Facebook, on TikTok, pictures of people with their toes in the sand and a drink in the hand, the sun overhead, the, you know, the waves rolling in, hashtag blessed life. Oh, I got the promotion, hashtag living blessed, new car, dream car, I'm so blessed. But that's always the highlight reel, isn't it? We never see the posts of the, the bad days. And it's not wrong to celebrate the good things. It's not wrong to be happy. It's not wrong to tell other people about it. But you never really see the low light reel. I, I've never seen a wife post the Sunday afternoon pic of her hubby with his gut hanging out over the belt line, falling asleep on the couch, drooling on himself. Hashtag living the blessed wife life, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. Now, I've never seen somebody post the picture of the unexpected bill for the unexpected car repair saying, hashtag living blessed. So what does blessing really mean? What does blessing look like? Because those are the real hashtags for the rest of us for a lot of the time, aren't they? Like life is not a perpetual happy day. There are some challenging moments along the way. So what does it mean to live blessed? You know, we, we have this idea in our culture that seems to say, if life is good and feels good, if it looks good, then I must be good with God. That must be blessing. But the reality is, is we know God does want to bless us. Jesus said, I came to give you a full and overflowing life. I think that could be described as a blessing. But the same person who said that, Jesus also said, in this world, you will have many troubles. So maybe a life that is blessed is not a life that is free from troubles and trials, tribulations and temptations. Maybe we've misunderstood what blessing really means. Maybe we don't fully understand what blessing looks like. So if we're going to live a blessed life and we're going to understand what blessings are, it only makes sense to go to the source of blessings, and that's God himself. That's why we're in a series called The Blessed Life, taking a look at the blessing statements that Jesus made at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Now, these are famously known as the Beatitudes, but it's maybe detrimental to think of them just as attitudes, uh, because this word Beatitude actually comes from the Latin, and it means blessing. So let's think of them more as statements of blessing. And today we're going to begin by unpacking the first of those blessing statements. Uh, I encourage you to take notes today. As always, you can text the word notes to 502-289-1387. It's a great way for you to have something that you can refer back to later for discussion, for thinking through it. Um, Maybe you don't want to use that note app, but take notes. It helps you engage more senses 
and remember better what we do at this time. Now, if you've got a paper Bible, you can turn there with us. You can also use your digital Bible, but we're going to have the, uh, the scriptures up on the screen. So Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, these crowds were coming to Jesus because he'd been teaching and he, or sorry, he'd been healing and helping, and that got people's attention. They were flocking around him for more healing and help, and then he decided he was going to teach them. His disciples, and a disciple is a student who follows the leader, so these disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we spent some time last week unpacking the kingdom of heaven, so we're not going to spend as much time there this week. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get online and listen to last week's sermon, but this week, we're going to spend our time unpacking this phrase right here, poor in spirit. And to help us understand what that means, because that's not language we would use a lot, it's good to go to some other translations. We, We could translate that this way, blessed are those who know their need of God. Blessed are those who depend only on God. Blessed are those who are starving to death spiritually. Or we could also translate it this way. Congratulations to the one who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy because he is open to the rule and reign of God in his life. The New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. And the Greek language has two different words for poor. So we come across blessed are the poor in spirit These are the two words that mean poor. Penes means you don't have anything to spare. You're living from paycheck to paycheck. You're living from hand to mouth. But patokos is even worse. It's not that you have nothing to spare. It's that you have nothing at all. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. You don't even have a paycheck. You're not living hand to mouth. You are starving to death. You are desperate and destitute for God. And the word that's used in the Greek in this passage is patokos. Blessed are those who have nothing at all spiritually, nothing to offer. Blessed are those who understand that their spiritual condition is spiritual bankruptcy, that they are in debt to God and in over their head. Now, this first of the Beatitudes comes first for a reason, because it's the foundation on which the rest of the Beatitudes are built. It's the foundation on which the rest of the Sermon on the Mount rests. And if you, if we don't understand this first one, if we get this one wrong, we'll miss the rest of Jesus' message. We'll miss everything Jesus does from then on out. We'll miss the whole message of why he came. And so this first beatitude is really about the way we approach God. Now, in our cultural context, there are a lot of people who approach God transactionally. That they view their spiritual growth and their spiritual interaction with God as though they're making deposits in a supernatural, cosmic, spiritual piggy bank. I do good stuff, and that puts deposits. Woo, that was almost dangerous. I do good things. Sorry, piggy. You okay? All right. You do good things, and I put deposits in the pig, you know, in the piggy bank. And if I do bad things, that's a withdrawal from the piggy bank. But hopefully my good outweighs my bad. In fact, There's been a lot of research done, and not only done by Christians, but research that's been done to ask people, if you go to heaven, why should God let you in? And most people would say, oh, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. And we have a tendency to think of ourselves much better than we actually are. 
and to overlook how bad we actually are. And, and so there's this idea that, yeah, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person, that I've done good things, that, that along the way I, I've put in enough deposits in the spiritual piggy bank that I'm pretty good. I, I went to church. That's got to be worth at least a dime. Well, the sermon went long. That became a quarter. <laughs> uh, I, I helped out and I, I, you know, I gave some money to the church. That's got to be worth several coins at the bank there, God. I served in the nursery and there was a poopy diaper and I had to change it. And the ventilation was a good, that's a quarter in the bank there, God, right? I made some good spiritual deposits. I'm a pretty good person. I, I prayed with my family and I did every, I, I started reading my Bible. I did that and I, I did it again and again and again every day for a week. I, I made these deposits. I didn't cuss at the person who cut me off in traffic. There's, you know, I put my cart back in the cart corral at the supermarket. God, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I pray several times and I, I watch what I say and I, I listened to the Christian radio station the other day. That's got to be some coins in the bank there. And we have this idea that we just keep putting spiritual coinage in the bank. And because of that, God owes us something. Like heaven is our reward for how good we've been. But there's also this idea, but God, I deserve some interest along the way. Like you, you should be blessing me along the pathway to heaven because I'm so good. I keep putting stuff in the bank. God, when are you going to pay me back for that? Like it's not just in heaven, right? Isn't there some blessing along the way? The problem with this idea that heaven is my reward for being so good is that it misses the reality. It misses what God tells us about our actual spiritual condition. Scripture tells us, and read this with me, the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's a paycheck. It's what we earn for what we do. So my work of sin has earned the payment of death. Does it sound like being good can overcome that? Like if, if my sin is bad enough to warrant the death penalty, does putting the cart back in the cart corral, does giving some money to the church, does showing up to church once in a while, does that overcome the bad I've done? Well, some people would think it does, but God says no, it doesn't. In fact, we are not as good as we like to believe we are. And every one of us is far worse than we would care to admit. Our sin is way more problematic than we realize. In fact, our sin is more, it's more pervasive than we might actually believe. It's not just that We've avoided doing those really bad things. In fact, Jesus will go on in the Sermon on the Mount to help us understand that sin is more of a heart condition than what we may have thought. It's not just about what we've done or not done with our, our hands and our mouths. He says, okay, so, you know, he'll go on to tell us where we would say, well, I've not murdered anybody. He'll challenge us to say, but have you held up hatred and bitterness in your heart? Well, I've not cheated on my spouse and I'm not gone out and been intimate with anybody else. No, but have you lusted with your eyes? Well, I'm not done this, but have you maintained a purity of heart? Our sin is far worse and far more pervasive than we think it is. And none of us are as good as we would pretend to be. In fact, I think a lot of us are perpetually trying to convince ourselves that we're better than we are. But the reality of our sin 
is it makes us slaves. It, it bankrupts us. It, it contaminates us. <clears throat> In fact, we could say it this way, that our sin doesn't just make a withdrawal from the bank. It breaks the bank. That that is what our sin does. It forever disrupts the deposit system. Try to put some good works change into that. You can't. The bank is broken. There is no way to fix it. And, and we might think, well, I can put myself back together. Maybe, maybe if I grab the pieces and I start trying to put that thing back together. It's going to look pretty wonky. It's going to show the scars. There are going to be holes. We can't put ourselves back together. What sin tells us is that we are broken to the point of death spiritually. And that, that's really bad news, isn't it? The beautiful thing about God, though, is he never leaves the bad news as bad news. He's always got some good news to follow. So the same verse that tells us that the wages of sin is death also tells us this, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. A free gift. Can you earn a gift that's free? No. Do you deserve the gift? No. If that were the case, it really wouldn't be a gift. If on Christmas morning, my kids were to give me some gifts and I'd say, well, this is great because I've been such a good dad and I've done so many good things for you, you deserve to pay me what I've earned as dad. I deserve good gifts. Do you think my kids would be excited to give me anything at that point? No. I'd be a jerk. That's not a gift, and that's not how you receive a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life. See, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. What we earn is death. What God gives us is life. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it. In fact, I love the way that the Apostle Paul said this when he was writing to the church at Ephesus. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote these words. God saved you by his grace when you believed. We could translate it this way. God saved you by grace through faith. You receive his grace by putting your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus. And you cannot take credit for this. Why? Because it's a gift from God. Read this next part with me. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Let's read that again. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Let's read it as though it's warm inside and not cold. And I know this is kind of a challenging thing. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So guess what? None of us get to boast about it. None of us get to go around saying, look, I'm so good. God, you owe me heaven. You owe me some blessing along the way because I've been good. I show up at church and I do good things and I help other people and I serve and I give and I do. No. No, in fact, all of us are actually pretty bad when it comes to it. When it comes to comparing ourselves against the holy standard of God. But God loves us, so he gifts us his grace. Now this word grace, we toss that word around a lot in the church and even in our culture. So I want to help us all understand 
maybe a way of thinking of it that help us understand what grace means. Now, admittedly, this is pretty cheesy, but I heard this decades ago, and it's been helpful for me since then. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. It might be good to think of grace as an acronym that means God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid the penalty, you get the prize. Jesus took our punishment on the cross, we get paradise in heaven forever. He died, we live. What a beautiful thing. Now we cannot earn that and we do not deserve that. No matter how much good we do, now how much you know, spiritual currency we try to put in that heavenly spiritual piggy bank, it's not enough. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be good or do good for one another. It just means that that good doesn't earn us good standing with God. Jesus did that. See, the gospel is not about what we do. Because what we do is sin. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for us. How he gives us new life by taking the punishment and the payment for our sin upon him. See, God loves you and he paid the penalty. And he gives you his love. So all you can do, all I can do, all any of us can do is simply receive that. And we receive that by faith. It's only when we recognize that we are like this piggy bank. Poor little piggy, sorry. But when we realize that we are broken, only when we realize that we are totally dependent upon God, only then will we turn from our way and turn to God. If you're with us for very long at all, and those of you who've been with us at this church for a while, you, you know that I'll say pretty regularly from time to time that repentance means turning away from our sin and turning to God, turning from our way to God's way. And that's true. But let me offer you another way of looking at this word repentance. That repentance is a desperate plea for rescue. Repentance happens when we confess and admit, God, my way is not working. My way is leading to death. And I don't just need a new way. I need your way, the only way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through me. Those are Jesus' words. God, I need your way. Jesus, I need your way. Because my way is broken and not working. My way breaks the bank. And I need life in you. Repentance is a desperate plea for God to rescue us from the problems we've created or those that have been handed to us. And the beautiful thing is Jesus says this is where the blessings begin. When we recognize our desperate need for Jesus, that's where blessing begins. When we realize and admit our spiritual poverty before God, that's where blessing begins. When we realize and admit that we are bankrupt spiritually and we need God's grace, that's when blessing begins. Because that's the only way to inherit the kingdom. See, these kingdom attitudes that Jesus unpacks in these blessing statements and really throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, they don't just describe what we should do. In fact, they don't really talk at all about what we should do. They describe who we should become. As we are the people of the kingdom. It's the way of the kingdom spelled out for us. In a sense, these blessing statements are Jesus' vision of what our lives could look like if we allow Jesus to be king. And this requires that we would surrender our pride and humble ourselves before God. It requires that we would acknowledge that we need Jesus to rescue us, that we need Jesus to lead us, that we need Jesus to save us. It requires that we would turn ourselves to God 
and turn away from our own rebellious ways. It requires surrendering and humbling. Now the great minds of our age would tell us that that's just a bunch of hogwash. That we don't need to do that. They would tell us, right? The hawkings of our world would say, no, no. Religion is antiquated. That the genius minds of our modern era would tell us that religion is an opiate for the masses. That God is dead, that he never existed. That we don't need God. We need to look to ourselves. We are gods unto ourselves. We need to rely on our own goodness, on our own strength, on our own knowledge, on our own intellect. And that that is what will save the world. That is what will fix the problems and save humanity. The problem is, our current generation has more access to more information than any other generation before. And what has it done? It has created spiritual and intellectual and chronological snobbery and arrogance. We're so good. But if knowledge alone, if intellect alone could solve the issues, they'd be solved by now. We would have fixed all the world's problems. We'd have ended the world's brokenness. But you know what? Just the opposite has happened. In fact, this is where our self-confident culture has led us. We live in a time that has produced more alcoholics, more drug addicts, more criminals, more broken homes, more murders, more suicides, more people on antidepressants, more division, more hatred, more loneliness, more lower self-esteem than any generation ever. Our way is not working. Self-sufficiency won't get it done. We need God. And the beautiful thing is Jesus offers us not only a new way, but a new life. His words are so poignant here. Blessed are those who don't think too highly of themselves, but who instead radically depend on God. What a beautiful invitation to find new life in him. Later in his ministry, Jesus, he fleshed this out. He illustrated this point with a parable, a story. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. They thought they were pretty good, and because of that, they scorned everyone else. He said two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a high-level religious leader who looked like he had it all together. The other was a despised tax collector. Tax collectors were despised because they were Jewish people who partnered with the Romans to get a job, and they took the money from their other Jewish friends who had been conquered by the Romans... And so they took the taxes, they got to pad their pockets, they lived large by giving the money to the Romans. They were traitors and sellouts. Jesus says, the Pharisee stood by himself, he prayed this prayer, I thank you God that I'm not like other people, like cheaters and sinners and adulterers. No, no, I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, I give you a tenth of my income. God, look how good I am. Thank you. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner and not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. This word justified might be helpful to think of it in these terms. It's just as if I'd never sinned at all. 
Which one went home looking good in God's eyes? Not the man who compared himself to others and said, well, I'm better than them. But the man who compared himself to God and said, I'll never measure up. And Jesus says, those who exalt themselves, those who lift themselves up, they will be humbled before God. But those who humble themselves before God, God will lift them up. This word we translate blessed in these blessing statements in Matthew 5. This word blessed can be translated as blessed. It can be translated as happy. But this Greek word, makarios, makarios, I would suggest is best translated congratulations. So maybe more than blessing statements, they're celebratory congratulation statements. Congrats to those of you who know your spiritual dependency on God because that is what unlocks the kingdom of heaven. Congrats to those of you who know that you are bankrupt spiritually before the Almighty because that is where the kingdom is found. Because instead of trying to build up your own kingdom and doing it on your own and trying to look good, you know that you need to look to God. Congratulations for discovering that. See, friend, the reality is we can't be filled with the blessings of God if we're already full of ourselves. If we're already thinking that we're so good, if we're thinking that we're doing good, then we are blocking ourselves from blessing. But when we acknowledge that we're not so good, and that's why we need Jesus, then we have discovered the pathway to his blessing. Only when we are spiritually starved will we get off the throne that Jesus alone belongs on. Only the poor in spirit have fully embraced the reality that the greatest blessing we could ever receive is a relationship with Jesus. This is the start of blessing. When we realize I need Jesus and he offers relationship with me and I begin there, there is no greater blessing. And this shapes how we would think of heaven. That heaven is not based on all the good I want to do and all the other people I want to see. But the first thing that comes to mind when we think of heaven is that we get to be with Jesus. And when we have that, we know we are right where God has created us to be. When that's the first thought that comes and that all the other blessings are shaped around his throne, then we begin to unlock the blessings God has for us. Because the kingdom of heaven cannot be found and cannot be experienced any other way than beginning with the relationship with Jesus and our dependency on him. Now, I'm a pretty thrifty dude. If you ask anybody who knows me well, they would say, I'm cheap. I like thrifty. It sounds better. And so as a thrifty, cheap dude, I'm a big fan of twofers, right? You get the two for one kind of thing. Well, I love that God, in his infinite wisdom, does so many things that are twofers, right? That what's best for us also brings glory to God. That God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And God is most satisfied, or God is most, we are most satisfied when God is most glorified in us, right? You get it. It's a twofer. Our satisfaction, God's glory, they they go together. Well, our dependency on God also brings a dependency on one another. It's a twofer. He doesn't only give us relationship with Jesus. He gives us relationship with one another. And these relationships with others, with his people, with the church, is how we find spiritual health and growth and where we find 
the blessings of life being poured out. And we see this demonstrated in our need for depending on one another. We see this demonstrated throughout the New Testament with dozens of one another statements. In the Greek language, you translate it one another. We find it all over the place in the New Testament. Pray for one another, confess to one another, hold one another up, bear with one another, serve one another, love one another. That one shows up all the time. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Be hospitable to one another. Greet one another. Be kind to one another. Don't hold a grudge against one another. Forgive one another. On and on and on and on it goes. This is why we get so geeked up on groups here at OCC. Because we know, we're convinced, there's no better place to experience the one another's in the New Testament than in a group, than in relationship with one another. You cannot fully experience the one anothering of the New Testament by simply showing up to this building for an hour or two on the weekend. Especially not just once in a while. That the place we experience the kind of dependency on one another that will help shape our dependency on God happens through groups. And I know some of you, you're like, I don't know about a group, man. I'm, I'm feeling so broken. Like I've got spiritual poverty in my life for sure because there's an addiction in my life. Maybe it's yours, maybe it's a loved one's. Guess what? We've got a group for that. Well, you'll find others navigating the same thing and together you'll find help and hope. Maybe... Maybe you're like, well, poverty I'm facing isn't just spiritual poverty. It's legitimate financial poverty. Patokos sounds like we'd be happy to be at the pennies kind of thing. If we just had some pennies, we'd be happy, right? Well, guess what? We know that physical poverty can get in the way of spiritual blessing. When we get so focused on the challenges that come with money, that can... That could sideline us in our faith. So guess what? We have a group to help you overcome your financial challenges. To help you get to a place of spiritual blessing. It doesn't mean to help you get to a place of being a millionaire. <laughs> but get to a place of spiritual blessing. Some of you are like, man, I, I just, I've got some spiritual poverty in my life. I've got some things that have gone wrong and some toxicity. And I just need, I, I just need to turn my life around. Guess what? we got a group for that. Some of you are like, well, but man, I just, I have this relational poverty in my life. I, I need better friends or I need spiritual friends or I just need a friend. Guess what? That's why our small groups are so vital. Because in a small group, you'll find a safe group of spiritual friends who will love you and help you and they'll keep God's word at the center of, this, of the friendship. Now, maybe you're not sure what group to begin with. Well, I'm going to encourage you to start with Rooted. I said rooted. There we go. And you ask anybody who just gave the whoop for rooted, and they'll tell you why it's so vital. Rooted is like our intro to groups. It's like our intro to to the church in a sense. It it is our DNA 101 kind of entry-level group. It's there and rooted. And listen, I'm going to be participating rooted again this season. I'll be leading a group, and I hope to have somebody. In fact, I would love to have all of you there, but a group that big just doesn't make for good connection. So it's going to be a smaller group, but I'm going to be leading a group, and I hope that I get to meet some of you there, and you'll join me at rooted. Because rooted is such a great place. It's a place where we find deeper connection to God. And listen, it doesn't mean that if you've been around the church for a while, you don't need it. In fact, some of you who've been here longest need it most. 
We have a guy in our church who's 80 years old. He's been a high-level kingdom leader for decades. And when he went through Rooted, he told me on the backside of it, he said, you know, Fitz, this is one of the best things I've ever done in my faith. I wish I'd have had this 70 years ago. So don't think that you've graduated from it, that you don't need it. All of us need it. It's a great place to begin or develop our connection with God, our connection with others in the church, and to find connection to our own ministry that God has for us, our own mission. So that sounds good, right? But you're probably wondering, okay, well, how do I do this? How do I sign up for a group? It's super easy. If you text the word NEXT to 502-289-1387, you'll get a prompt. Let us know you're interested in a group, and we'll connect you. If you don't want to text right now, you feel weird pulling your phone out right now, you make a beeline to what we call the stone wall. It's directly in front of the center doors to our worship service. After church, you go there, and we have some people who will help you find the right group that's best for you and get you connected. So the first thing you do is sign up. The next thing you do is you show up. You show up next week to group launch right here at 6.30 next week. I'm going to be here. I hope to see you there. And then after that, the third thing is you just watch how God blesses you through what he does in that group. And if you're not in a group, let me tell you, two things are happening if you are not in a group. One, you're holding out. Two, you're missing out. You're missing out because God wants to do something for you and in you through those other people. But also you're holding out because he wants to do something special in their lives that only you can offer. So if you're not grouping, you're holding out and missing out. And I don't want either of those things to happen for you. So show up next week to group launch, get in a group. I'll see you there, right? It's that easy. Now, grouping is awesome. And I'm going to encourage all of us to group all the time. But there's a step before that that's essential for us. And that is the ultimate display of dependence on God. It's the ultimate display of being poor in spirit. And that display is baptism. Baptism It's the picture the New Testament paints for us of declaring our dependency on God, of admitting that we need Jesus to lead us because we don't lead ourselves very well, of saying we need Jesus to rescue ourselves because we can't put the pieces back together on our own. Baptism is where we put to death our old way of living, our old stubborn rebellion to God, where we put to death our path, our way. And we come up in a brand new resurrected life to be born again into the forever life with Jesus. Eternal life begins not on the other side of that grave in the cemetery, but on the other side of the grave of baptism. We will come up in a brand new life with Jesus. And when we're baptized, we declare, Jesus, I need you to lead me and I need you to save me. And there are only two requirements that you need to be baptized. You don't have to clean up your life and get yourself all put together. Guess what? You can't. You can't clean this up and put this all together. That's why you need Jesus. And you don't have to know everything there is to know. You don't have to have all your questions about the church answered. You don't have to have all your questions about the Bible answered, all your questions about science and faith and all those kinds of things. You simply need to know that you need a new life and Jesus is the way. That you need him to rescue you and you're willing to let him lead you from this point forward. That's it. So in just a moment... We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I pray that as we do, that all of us who sing, that we sing and we turn that song as a prayer of our allegiance to King Jesus, as worship of gratitude for who he is. But if you have never before made the decision to follow Jesus, that as we sing, you'll join me right down here in front of the baptistry and we'll get you started. We've got everything you need. 
we've got warm water and it's warm today and we've got nice warm towels for you and we've got warm-hearted volunteers to take care of you. They're going to pray with you. They're going to show you everything you need to know. We'll take you back there. We've got clothes for you to wear so you don't have to get your clothes wet and go outside in freezing cold weather and try and walk home in icy clothes. You don't have to do that. In fact, we've got a shirt that you get to keep and wear later, and that's your your take home. People say, hey, what's that shirt about? You say, oh, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my brand new life. We even have undies for you. If you, it, We don't want those back. <laughs> I don't think. So, you know, we, we've thought of all of it. We've got everything taken care of. The only thing that we have missing is you. So when we stand and we sing, if you're ready, you join me right down here. Now, church, I hope, I hope for all of us who've already made that decision, that, that we don't look at this verse of being poor in spirit as something where we started, but we've moved on from. I hope we realize that being poor in spirit is the reality of where we stand always before God. Jesus, I need you, and I'm so glad I've got you. Thanks for loving me. Friends, may this, may this move us to a daily declaration of dependence on God. Choose to depend on God, not just today, not just in a moment, not in a moment of baptism, but every day, all the time. In fact, I want to encourage you to stand with me and declare your allegiance to Jesus once again. So if you've been married, let's go ahead, everybody stand up. I'm going to have you repeat this after me. I believe that Jesus is the king. The son of the living God. And I follow him as my leader and as my rescuer. Oh God, may this be our prayer every day. Our daily prayer of allegiance. Our daily prayer of dependence. Our declaration that you are king. That you are rescuer. That you are leader. And that we need you. God, may our lives demonstrate our dependence on you. Jesus, we bring nothing to the table. And we thank you that even though we can't earn it and we don't deserve it, and the best that we have is a broken bank before you, you give us your love. You invite us to brand new life, freely and openly. May our faith be always in you. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's remain standing and let's worship. And if that was your first time declaring your allegiance to Jesus, I'll see you right down here and we'll see you in the water.